Now, okay. hold on, Kenny. We have to, anytime I talk to someone from Alabama, I got to find out, are you an Auburn fan or a Tide fan? Neither. I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> This is episode 238 of Bourbon Pursuit. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny, and it's time for a bit of bourbon news. Lou Bryson, an acclaimed bourbon journalist and author, wrote a captivating story called America's First Family of Bourbon, The Beams. I'm going to give you a little bit of context about the article and hope that you go read the rest of it because it gives a historical timeline of James Beauregard Beam, better known as Jim Beam, and distilling bourbon before Prohibition, what he did after Prohibition ended, and how this family lineage just has ties spreading all across the bourbon industry. Now, during Prohibition, he tried other businesses, including a rock quarry and an orange grove that ultimately failed. So he found investors in Illinois to fund a new distillery after Prohibition ended. Along with his son and two nephews, they built a distillery in 120 days and opened on March 25, 1935. Jim was 70 years old at the time. And before Prohibition, the Beam family brand had been Old Tub Bourbon Whiskey. To Jim's dismay, he learned that the rights to the name had been sold during Prohibition. Despite this setback, he was undeterred, and that's when the whiskey officially became Jim Beam Bourbon. The story then dives into this mid-1700s with Johannes Jacob Beam. And then from there, the family lineage starts really spreading and talks about how they helped create early times distillery, Toddy's Liquor, Heaven Hill, and their ties into Stitzel Weller, Maker's Mark, Frankfurt Distillery, J.W. Dant, Four Roses, Michter's, and so many more. You can read the full story with the link in our show notes to thedailybeast.com. Wilderness Trail, one of the founding distillery destinations on the Kentucky Bourbon Trail Craft Tour, has advanced to join the Kentucky Bourbon Trail Adventure, becoming the 18th stop on the world-famous journey that showcases America's only native spirit. Co-owners Shane Baker and Pat Heist are recognized globally as leading fermentation specialists through their original company, Firm Solutions, consulting with distilleries around the world to develop products and enhance production. And you can listen to Pat and Shane back on episodes 121 and 130. They're open for tours Tuesday through Saturday, and the visitor experience includes a 45-minute walking tour and an educational tasting seminar in the tasting room. You can learn more at wildernesstraildistillery.com. Talladega Super Speedway has announced that Clyde Mays Whiskey has become its official whiskey. Roy Danis, chief executive officer of Kunica Brands, which has Clyde Mays in its portfolio, said the partnership with Talladega Super Speedway is particularly resonant for Clyde Mays because they have a similar origin. Stock racing was invented by moonshiners who used fast cars to escape the law. Clyde May was an Alabama farmer and a moonshiner who dodged a law himself a few times. They are the official state spirit of Alabama, and Talladega is one of the most famous venues in the state. Clyde May himself would have been proud to know his legacy continues through this Talladega partnership. Now, you heard it when we first started the podcast, but I want to say thank you to our returning sponsor, the UofL College of Business and the Online Distilled Spirits Business Certificate. We had a few listeners enroll last time, so perhaps it's time for you to give it a look. Make sure you go check it out at uofl.me slash bourbon pursuit. Now, Red Hook Rye. That bottling might be what made Linnell a household name among bourbon unicorn chasers over the years, but Linnell has a story to tell when it comes to the spirits industry. Her story is filled with encounters that propelled her name and eventually put her little shop in Brooklyn on the map. We hear the story of owning a store in that area back in the day, how it was like, and how she has now gone back to her roots opening up a store in Alabama. Now, before you go any further, this podcast does contain explicit language, so don't say we didn't warn you. You get to hear the real Linnell Camacho Santa Ana. All right, it's that time. You've got Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. Here we go into the Super Bowl. Oh my gosh, this is a great matchup. If you're a sports fan, you get to see two amazing rushers in the San Francisco 49ers up against one of the most explosive offenses I have seen in some time. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is this guy that, you know, he may be down 25 points and he's like, oh yeah, I'm going to show you. 
And I got to tell you, I am so, so glad that we have the matchup that we have because it is it is kind of like a football fan's dream. Great offense against great defense and one really good offense against a really good defense that, you know, what's going to give here? Anyway, this is not a football podcast. This is a bourbon podcast, so I should probably get to it. The reason why I bring up the Super Bowl, it, it wasn't until 2017 that the NFL even allowed uh, spirits advertisers. So for years, they had a ban on distilled spirits advertising within the NFL. Now, you got to remember, too, spirits had not been advertising on television until 1996. The industry had put a self-imposed ban on advertising from spirits, having this kind of notion that, you know, if they promoted themselves, they could be drawing the ire of the prohibitionists. This this held true until the mid-1990s, until a small group from Crown Royal that we call the Code Breakers broke the code of the Distilled Spirits Council and did a small little uh, test ad in the Corpus Christi, Texas market. That went into like the, the Spirits Council changing their, basically changing a lot of their their code, and so now you see spirits being advertised consistently. However, sports teams still struggle to bring in uh, booze advertisers because what happens at these games? People get really drunk. They make fools of themselves. I mean, there have been many incidents of people getting hurt. I think there have been people being killed by, um, you know, drunken assholes before. And so it's often a bad look in the eyes of people who own these NFL teams to associate themselves with the liquor brand. Well, in 2019, the NFL actually changed their uh, their belief. They relaxed their policy on alcohol sponsorships and allowed the league to expand, uh, the, expand the use, of, basically allow um, a brand like Jim Beam to partner with a player. And that's the first time that anyone had ever done that. And if you recall, a few years ago, you had uh, Richard Sherman on the podium talking about how the NFL wouldn't allow people to partner with alcohol brands. So I'm glad to see that the NFL has relaxed those policies. I hope that it will continue because there is not many things better than enjoying a great football game with a good bourbon. So while you're watching the Super Bowl, think about it. You're actually kind of witnessing a little bit of spirits history, too because I'm sure we're going to see some cool spirits ads. Let's just hope they're not vodka. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you want to learn more about the history of bourbon and advertising, check out my book, Bourbon, The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of American Whiskey. And make sure you're subscribing to my YouTube channel and checking out my new podcast. Just search my name, Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Give 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. 
Welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Fred here today, and this is going to be talking to really, it's, it's kind of like two facets of it. We talk a lot about having retailers on the show and sort of what has that meant in regards to the bourbon boom and the business and, and really how they are uh, changing their strategy of uh, going forward and, and how they're, they're really marketing the products inside of their, their walls to, to these newer consumers. But on the other hand, our guest today also comes with a pretty storied past. Um, she's had her name on sides of bottles and all these things before that has, has kind of took her to a, a new level of fame where she's had write-ups in multiple magazines and articles and blogs and stuff like that. So I'm really excited to, to talk to our guest today. Fred, how did you come to, to know our guest? Well, I think um, honestly, it was through Willet. Like I, 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 I learned of her very um, early on um, when I was writing my book uh, Whiskey Women, and she was kind of became like this, like this kind of like folklore legend uh, within like within the legends of of bourbon. You know, I, I, I find. Um, our guest today to be one of the most underrated heroes of of bourbon, and I and I'm a really American whiskey, and and I genuinely mean that because she's very humble. She doesn't like attention. She doesn't want to be in the limelight. She just loves whiskey, and at the end of the day, I think that that's why most of us adore her. Yeah, I think uh, I think you said it right. It was funny when we were uh, when I was talking to our, our guest Linnell today about getting her on the podcast, and I was trying to say like, oh, like you know, I, I promise, like it'll be good. Like here's our numbers. She goes, I don't give a shit about your numbers. You know, it's it's really funny. <laughs> she's just like, I, she, I, she didn't care. And and most of the time, you talk to a lot of people in this industry, and they kind of want to know what your reach is. Like, what are you going to help them? And she's she was she's very humble about it. Uh, and and hopefully that that's really going to shine through uh, as we start talking here. So without further ado, let's go ahead and. and Introduce our guest. So today on the show, we have Linnell Camacho Santa Ana. She is she the boss of Linnell's Beverage Boutique in Birmingham, Alabama. So Linnell, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, we're very excited to have you on. And kind of before we get into the story of you and Linnell's and uh, the, the Willits and all that kind of stuff, kind of talk about like your introduction to whiskey. Can you remember that sort of first bottle, that first taste? You know, we've had other distillers on and they say, oh, we've had my, my grandpappy gave me a wee nip when I was a little, little young lad. Like, what's, what's, your, what's your story there? Come from a teetotaler background, so there was no drinking in my youth. Um, I had an alcoholic grandfather, so my introduction to whiskey was him coming home drunk and beating the fuck out of my grandma. So there's some reality of our business right there. Um, I did not drink until I was 21. So you know, my best uh, recollection of like a first whiskey would have been probably Jack Daniels passed around a campfire, like many folks in the, in the South. Kind <laughs> <laughs> of talk about your, your uh, you know, where you come from, your youth and, and all that sort of stuff as well. Because I think you kind of talked about a, a pretty interesting background. I grew up here in Alabama, in North Alabama. I uh, left Birmingham uh, in 2000 and went to New York. Uh, I was in Birmingham for 10 years before I went to New York. I was in New York for about 10 years before I moved to Mexico and now back in, in Alabama as of 2011. Now, okay. hold on, Kenny. We have to, anytime I talk to someone from Alabama, I got to find out, are you an Auburn fan or a Tide fan? Neither. I don't give a shit. <laughs> 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 Would you say you might be the only Alabama that does not care about college football? Well, I've always been a critical thinker. And um, growing up, I never understood why my family were Crimson Tide fans when nobody in my family had graduated from high school, much less gone to college. So I <laughs> always questioned, like, where did that start as some kind of like heritage thing? Like who woke up one day and said, oh, roll Tide? <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's hilarious. That's to me. So I, I kind of want to also uh, touch on uh, sort of the history of of you and and how the Linnell's brand kind of got started. Can you can you really kind of 
take us back in the history books and and sort of like where did the idea come from to to open up the first boutique? When I moved to New York, my goal was to really just deep dive into the industry and fig- and figure out my path. And I didn't move to New York in 2000 with the goal of opening my store, but I I worked in retail, I'd worked in restaurant, I'd done bartending. Um, I had a master's degree in public administration. I was in university admin before I left um, Alabama and went to New York. But um, it was time to really pursue my heart and and just take the risk to jump into the industry with both feet. So um, after working pretty much all aspects of the business, including sales, um, I wrapped five different wine books in New York um, before I opened the store. And I didn't know whether I was going to do the store or a bar first, um, but it just fell into place and made sense for me to, to go with the store first. My goal had always been to open um, an on and off premise um, business situation at some point, but the um, the on premise never happened in New York. Um, and in 2003, I opened the store in Red Hook, Brooklyn after um, finding a, a little hole in the wall that I could afford to to get started with. It was a boarded up storefront actually had concrete blocks in the window. <laughs> it wasn't just boarded up. It was concrete blocked in a neighborhood that was uh, pretty rough around the edges. There was a meth clinic around the corner and um, a whole lot of shenanigans in that neighborhood. The median income was $10,000. Three fourths of the population lived in subsidized housing. Um, but it felt like the right space for me. And it turned out it, you know, was, incredibly successful and red hooks crazy now with real estate, but, um, wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to think about this, but you know, you were part of the story of turning around red hook. Yeah, I was part of that story. I wasn't, yeah, I can't take uh, credit for all that went on in red hook, but I was definitely a part of it. Um, good or bad. I mean, the word gentrification has lots of connotations and, and I don't ever feel like a gentrifier because I think there's a certain level of income that has to come with that. And I've scrapped a whole lot in my life <laughs> to be where I am today, but I didn't come with a trust fund to open up anything. Um, but yeah, I think the same thing here in my neighborhood in Birmingham, I found this property and it felt right. And everybody thought I was crazy, just like they did in, in Red Hook, Brooklyn. And I said, why not? Why, why doesn't every neighborhood deserve a good liquor store no matter what the economics are yeah what what were those early days like i mean who was like your average customer what were you selling there in red hook what was that like it was all over the place and it's really funny to go back and look um one day i run across some some old notes from the like the first few months (laughs) and it was hilarious because it was like well i painted my nails (laughs) I <laughs> sold a bottle of Pappy. <laughs> it's like, it was just like slow and sleepy because I nobody knew me, you know, and opening here in Birmingham was just like night and day. Like we hit the ground running and we've been just packed um, from the beginning. But, um, you know, our early customers were a lot of, of neighbors in Red Hook, um, spanning the demographics, black and brown and young and old and all economics. Um and then once people discovered what I was doing, it just became like a, this Mecca destination spot where people came from all over New York, as well as, you know, when they'd be tra- people be traveling to New York, they'd make the effort to come out. Red Hook was like a 45 minute um, schlep from the closest subway stop. So it wasn't a, an easy place to get to. People had to really want to be there. Mm-hmm. Now, in that first in that first year, like we we see on the nightly news of of uh, liquor store robbing robberies all the time. And that was certainly an area at the time when you, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, some of the shenanigans that were going on when you were moving in. Did you ever have any incidents early on or was there any like times that you, you know, like you were afraid to open up or, or, or close or anything like that because of. I, I never had any crime and I, I fully believe that you attract what you put out. Hmm. And if you walk in fear, then you attract reasons to be afraid. I walked out of that store many nights with thousands of dollars after midnight and walked to my apartment. I never had anybody bother me. Um, and this is a great story. I love telling this story because there were, um, you know, a lot of people, like I said, three-fourths of the neighborhood population lived in 
New York's biggest housing project. And there was a, a gentleman who came in the store in the, the early days of it opening and, you know, the kind of guy that my, my warning bells would, that, you know, you, you get the racist shit with your grits. Everybody does. It don't matter what, how much you're going to say, you ain't racist. We all have stupid shit that runs through our heads. He walked in the door and I was like, he's about to fuck me up. <laughs> Gold grill. He just looked like he was ready to come in there and race some hell with me. Um, tried to just suppress all the crap that was running through my head and treat him like I was going to treat anybody else. And um, he became a great customer. He was a man of few words. He would bring his friends in. He bought the banana vodka to begin with. We finally moved him up to Charbet. So uh, <laughs> he was buying like Charbet blood orange vodka. Um, but the end of that story is one night we got to overhear him talking to some friends and he said, yo man, have you been to that woman's store? She treats you with respect. There's no bulletproof glass and she's got really nice things in there. Boom. I mean, here's a man living in the housing projects who looks like he might be the kind of guy who's going to like take you down. And yet he wants to be treated with respect just like anybody else. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, I think that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier and just, uh, you know, the, the personality you kind of showing through there and, and what that means. But, you know, one thing I, I kind of want to touch on one more time before we, we go too much into the, your time here in New York, um, because you said that you were going to go all in. But what was what was that like pivotal moment or what was that idea that said, yeah, I, I do want to go all in uh, because, you know, you had you had come from a background that uh, didn't have any any alcoholic. You know, you didn't drink anything growing up. You kind of abusive in the grandfather era. So kind of talk about like what made you want to, to do that as well. Well, I got custody of a 14 year old sister when I was 21 years old and um, I needed like many people who get into the liquor business and some form of bartending to, to make money. And so I was bartending and cocktail waitressing on the side to just have some income to better support our household. Um, got bitten by the bug. And for years, I just kind of dabbled in that way. I wasn't doing it full on. Um, but yeah, you know, sitting in my office at university one day pushing a bunch of papers around my desk I realized I was really spending a whole lot of my office time fucking off and researching drinks <laughs> and so I was like you know maybe I need to really th rethink this um I had a very cush job with, with great benefits but um a friend of mine who's a librarian once gave me a book it's been around for a gazillion years and a million iterations called what colors your parachute and if you actually go through that book and you do all the exercises which are not easy it really makes you sit and dig deep. Um, it will give you an idea of what your heart's passion is career-wise. And so at the end of that, I was like, I need to be in the liquor business and I need to move to New York. So I literally just like, yeah, I quit my job, sold my house, sold my car, and then packed a moving truck and went to New York. But now, as there is often in, in a story that involves, involves New York, there's, there's a romance aspect of that because I was dating a guy long distance for a long time in Indiana and he had just said, well, let's finally get together. We've been together for four years. He said, you want to go to Atlanta or New York? And I was like, you know, fuck Atlanta, let's move to New York together. Um, he broke up with me before I actually did the move, but um, I took red lipstick and wrote on my mirror for me and I did it anyway. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. I mean, because that's actually I was getting ready to ask, like, why New York of, of all places? Right. Because yeah. sometimes, you know, my wife, she spent uh, a, an internship in New York one year. It's not an easy place to live. It'll it'll chew you up and swallow you out because it's 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 very, very expensive to live in uh, some of the parts of it and stuff like that. So interesting story on just yeah, how you got to New York. Be, you know, if you want to be in the liquor business, because everybody wants to be in New York, so you have tremendous access to things. But um, I went to New York when I was. 18 years old or seven, I was 17, um, for a high school senior trip. And it was the first place I ever felt like I was home. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a melting pot of, of all kinds of races and cultures and, and everything right there. And I think the one thing that I love about New York is at least when you go is you can go to a different restaurant every day of your life and you could never run out of places to go eat. Yeah. I wish you could run out of money. That's true. Real quick. <laughs> well, you could live in New York. I mean, yeah, everybody wants to talk about rent and real estate, but uh, you can live in New York economically. I mean, 
I did it for years. So. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's get back to whiskey business here. So mm-hmm. what was, let's, let's talk about, um, you know, it's a package store. Uh, and we understand that most of the time that it's not whiskey that sells and keeps the door open. It's everything else that's, that's around there as much as Fred to his to chagrin, he has to understand how that works. Right. But kind of talk about unless maybe unless you're Linnell. <laughs> so kind of talk about like, was there a, like a niche or a market for whiskey that you saw and you were pushing it? Like kind of talk about how you, you started getting into that business. My, my main thing with how I started focusing on bourbon, when I opened my store, I didn't know shit about bourbon. That's just being honest. But it was my Southern connection. And so when I was sitting down and just trying to like vision board uh, my store concept, I was like, it just makes sense for me to make a big focus of this store be my Southern connection. And so, of course, you know, bourbon, what, why else not? Um, so... You know, in those first months, the store was incredibly slow and I would, um, we were open till midnight. Things were definitely slow from 10 to midnight. So every night, 10 to midnight, I would pop something, taste it, and I'd be on straightbourbon.com. Like, what the hell? What's everybody saying? What is this? You know, get out there, just try to like soak up as much as I could. And (laughs) it just sort of, you know, I I was preaching bourbon before it became cool. um, And it wasn't even that, you know. I, w- I wasn't like trying to create a trend or whatever. I was just really just trying to be true to my Southern roots. Well, I think if you're on straight bourbon, you were one of the early people that oh, were yeah. really talking about it. I mean, that's, that's the OG board, if you will. Well, you know, it was general Nelson. Everybody would gather for every bourbon festival. And and so did you kind of foster, cause I know that a lot of people from straight bourbon still hang out. They, they still do the, the KBF kind of gatherings and stuff like that. It, were you a part of that, that early group in those sort of gatherings too? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I always had my room reserved at the Nelson and, um, um, you know, that's how I met Chuck Cowdery. We had his, um, straight bourbon book launch at one of the members houses there in Kentucky. And, uh, um, but once the store became so busy, it was just impossible for me to stay as active on the board. Um, I, I had to pull away, of course. I couldn't couldn't sit around and fuck off on the computer as much. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so I, I guess, was that just business taking off just in general? Because you had mentioned at the very beginning, yeah, you painted your nails, sold a bottle. And then I guess, I guess at some point you hit like the inflection point. Yeah, I mean, a mentor told me when I opened, you're going to think you're dying for three years and then something magical happens in the third year. And that's exactly what happened. It was like third anniversary came around and then all of a sudden it just took off. Mm -hmm. So you start getting into whiskey. Uh, Talk about like the selection that you you started off with and and did it grow over time like as you got into bourbon and you tried to no, get your I really consumers just, I into it every bourbon i could get my hands on in new york and there's you know a lot of availability there and it didn't matter what it was um you know if it said bourbon on it i put it on my shelf um we did what you know we'd call cats and dogs tastings and do everything it wasn't just all about you know trying to have julian van winkle come in the store um you know, it's even a funny story. The first time I met Julian was at um, one of the whiskey festivals in New York, and I, I was scared shitless. <laughs> I was like, all right, so I just got to rock this. So I just put on some, like, pink suede pants, some black high-heeled boots, walked up in, you know, a sea of drunken men, and I walked up to Julian and handed him my business card and said, you don't know me, but you need to. And I just walked away. <laughs> We've, you know, made friendships over the years and it, we tell these stories and it's hilarious. But he was like, I was just like, who the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he came to my store. We did a bottle signing in those early days and I had people just like packed. And then the black cars came from lower Manhattan and he just was looking at me. He's like, what the hell? I've never done an event like this. And I was like, well, get ready. It's coming. If you don't know it, you're about to just be blown away. And he was like, oh, I don't, okay. Um, so, you know, I was an early believer in what he was doing with the Pappy label. And when I closed the store in 2009, I still had, I still had Pappy on the shelf. I still had Red Hook Rye on the shelf. Wow. <laughs> you know, it was sat in my basement for years. <laughs> so speaking of Red Hook Rye, let's, let's get into that. 
how did that happen? Uh, much in the same way as anything I believe in happens. It just happens naturally. Um, that wasn't anything I clamored for. Drew and I became friends through the industry. Um, I remember the first time I met him, he came to one of the whiskey festivals and the room was all a buzz because, you know, Evan had been a hermit for so long. And he was like, there's a Coles vein here. Oh, my God. And Drew, like me, was very matter of fact, just like cut through the bullshit, just tell things like it was. And we hit it off, stayed in touch. And once um, I think we were just like hanging out in Bardstown and he said, yeah, we should do a, we should do a barrel. We should we should do a label for you. And we just did. You know, it wasn't a whole lot of not a whole lot of thought process. It's just say, hey, sure. Why not? Let's do yeah, it. Let's do you, it. You, know? you kind of created this iconic label. You know, first of all, Red Hook Rye just has such a beautiful name to it. And even if you're not familiar with uh, the Red Hook area, like you could live in Boise, Idaho and not be familiar with that area. And you're like, wow, Red Hook is such a cool name. And then you see that and you see that arm with the tat. It just was that your idea? I mean, who came up with the name and that art? Well, I came up with the name because I was trying to do something to honor my neighborhood. Um I'm into alliteration, so that was a natural thing. Um, the artwork was the the Brooklyn artist who did my postcard artwork, and I don't know if you ever saw my postcards, but they were incredibly racy. Um, and he was just hilarious, and he would always push, even for me, he would push my boundaries of racy. <laughs> but, um, I was talking to marketing firms about designing the label, and he just showed up and he was like, can I give it a go? Can I just like throw something together and you tell me whether you like it or not before you like commit to these big firms to design a label for you. And um, he showed up in the store one day and he was like, well, you know, I'm trying to be, you're, you're trying to be true to the neighborhood by calling it Red Hook Rye. I'd like to be true to the, the history of the neighborhood. And um, this being on the waterfront of Brooklyn and stevedores being a part of the history of, you know, big burly man on the docks unloading, ships and whatnot and so yeah he just presented it and i was like done that's the label right there (laughs) (laughs) i mean seriously it is it is a uh kind of a showstopper you're walking around you see that label even if you don't know anything about whiskey or you want to taste it you want to look at that beautiful piece of art because that's what it is it's art Uh, so it's gorgeous yeah, he was so much fun to work with and um, just trying to do things outside the box. I mean, there's so many boring whiskey labels out here. Um, I'm working on another one right now that's going to really make you laugh a lot. Oh. They're like, Linnell's crazy as hell. Um, I showed it to, yeah, to Britt Colesbank. Right she was like, we have got to do this. And it's using a local artist here in Birmingham. Um, and I'm keeping it under wraps for now. <laughs> Well, give us till the end of the show to get it out of you. <laughs> um, T- take us take us through the process of selecting the whiskey for Red Hook Rye. Because, yes, the, the label is gorgeous. But I've got Red Hook Rye as one of the top five ryes I've ever tasted. I mean, it's it's incredible. So take us through selecting that whiskey. Well, as you know, there were four barrels. And um, the first barrel... Drew and I, with a couple other folks, were just in the warehouse, literally like just walking over barrels and popping bongs and tasting whiskey and passing it around. And like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And that number one is still my favorite of all four barrels. I mean, you know, it was really just being able to pick kind of the cream of the, the crop. The, the, um, the barrel was phenomenal. Do you remember some of the, the ages that were on these? I can't I can't bring up my notes right the now. The first one was 23 years and um, the rest were 24. You know, not a lot of people know. And I go to me, Pappy 23 sucks. I, I, I won't even drink it. Um, the um, the age of bourbon at, at that level is usually I mean, it's overwooded and it won't mm. hold up in a glass. I tell people all the time you can spend a fortune on Pappy 23, like let it sit on your counter for half a second, come back. And it's like, you know, all oxidized and cloudy and funky. Um but, the, you know, what made that whiskey so special at that age is that they had um, dumped the barrels that they had initially bought and refilled bourbon barrels with the rye. So that whiskey could sit there for a little longer at that age and not 
be so over the top with wood. And we didn't really talk about that. We didn't market it, but that that's one thing that made those all those barrels so special. And then the, you know, it's been so long. I don't remember who was with me on each pit, but at one point I drove down with Don Lee from New York, who had um, worked with me a little bit in the shop, and he's now, you know, cocktail rock yeah, star. Yeah, he's um, he's like a bartending god. He is. He's amazing, and I really treasure him. He came down with me, and another um, another guy got his start, just kind of working with me in the shop. We had one at one point. Um, Veach came. Can't remember which barrel that was. But it's, just been, could, it's been so many good barrels. You can't I remember. Know. Well, when Veach was there, I remember. You know, we were just passing a glass around, and we all had to agree on it. It was, you know, it was. I had to pass my lips first, and I thought it was worthy, and then I'd pass it around, and we were all like, "Nah, yeah, or maybe." It had to be like a like an all out like, "Yeah, that one." So very scientific process, kind of. <laughs> It sounds like exactly what happens in barrel selections nowadays. So it's just, yeah, you just, exactly. yeah, you know, you just had the, the luxury of being in there quite early when yeah. stuff like that was around. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's never going to happen again. You know, I've had so many people reach out to me. There's a store in Red Hook that asked me if they could buy the rights to it. And I was like, that's not going to exist anymore. Like that label is done. There's a Red Hook rye beer. Like if you, somebody even tried to launch that today, they'd be sued by, somebody making beer that wouldn't like that label to be around. <laughs> so, Linnell, I'm going to be your agent here. The the asking price, they so they want to come in and they want to buy that the the Red Hook right rights. What are you thinking, Kenny? Started out at 15 million? Is that a good is that a good Ooh, number? That's up there. Uh maybe maybe 5. I'd say 5. five. Okay, so we're going I was going too high. All right, so Linnell, we'll we'll come in and negotiate this for you. No, Get a listen, 5 million deal. We won't even we won't even take a cut. We just want the whiskey. <laughs> what what, what red hook ride what red hook ride do you have left? I don't even have any. You don't have any left? I'm not. I sold all of it to raise money to finish my store. I had such a struggle getting the money I needed to finish construction. Um it took me seven years to get open here. Wow. And, um I really didn't even realize what I was sitting on. I'd been out of it for a bit as a new mom and having been out of the country for two years. And my ex-husband kept saying, you have got to pull this whiskey out. You, you have no idea. He's like, everybody at my bar is asking me if you, if you'll sell it to them. And I'm like, whatever, like, come on, got some Pappy and some Red Hook Rye, big deal. And then one day I called and talked to Drew and I was like, Hey man, I'm really hurting. And I need, I need to get this business open. Um, I divorced and you know, things were really tough. It's a single mom. And, um, he was like, well, I know um, Doug sold some of his bottles for like 3700 or something. So I know you can, can get around that. You know, and I put a whole set of four out, um, bottles number two, and I couldn't get anybody to offer me more than 20000 for all four. And I had everybody under the sun messaging me and, and, you know, some even like calling me names. It was it was a side of the sexist bullshit in this business that I hadn't been exposed to in a long time and kind of threw me. I was so disrespected in that process. And, you know, and then you see now, like those same guys who were like, call me a cunt for trying to sell four number twos for $20,000 would turn around now and sell one for 16. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'll just stick to my retailing. Y'all can play around with your bootlegging. I'm done with that. <laughs> Yeah, that is that is unfortunately a really um, nasty side of our culture. That you know, it's very much very pocketed to the enthusiast side. Like you don't really see that. But I'm sorry you went through that. I, I really am sorry you went through that. As 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 somebody who loves this community, and um, I'd, I'd love I'd love it if that would stop. But sadly, it won't. And, and I, I will tell you that they, if they attacked you for being a woman, you know, they say similar things to men. They just, that I've seen this time and time again in those groups is like, when it comes to this stuff, people go overboard in the private messages and then they get very dirty, very mean. And I'm very sorry you had to go. It was that. so different from the environment of like a straight bourbon.com or bourbon enthusiast.com experience I'd had. Where 
yeah, there might be a tiff here and there, but it was overall like very civilized. And yeah, the level of bourbon mania going on in these secret pages is something that really disgusts me. Um, and here's the thing too, Linnell, how much do those people really know? And what do they really add to the conversation? Yeah, I mean- A lot of them are just I, wanting money. You know, Drew and I've had many conversations about that kind of thing. And, you know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that that exists in many ways um, because I did end up selling my bottles and that money put the roof on my store. But at the same time, there's, uh, I don't know. I, I've always been about building the relationships. It's never been about just the business or barrel of whiskey for me. And when it gets to this level of just dog eat dog, who's who's got the biggest collection and who can get the most money for it, it just bores me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's and, and I think you you'd kind of hit the or you said it right there. Um, last I checked, I, I think some of those red hooks were fifteen even up to 18,000 a bottle, something like that. And I, and I, I guess like, what is, what's your thought on that valuation or price? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today, shopify.com slash bourbon. What is, what's your thought on that valuation or price? I mean, is that something that, A, I'm, I know you probably never dreamed it would be like that, but like, yeah. what is your, what is your really like your gut thought? Do you really think it's, you really think it's worth that? Are you kind of like, man, that's just, that's just crazy shit. It's like, you know, you've heard this a million times. Is anything worth it? I mean, that's subjective. If you think it's worth it and you got that kind of cash, then it's worth it. But, you know, I spent $17,000 on my business property, $5,000 on the house I'm living in. When I see these kind of numbers, it makes me quiver a little bit because I'm like, wow, like that's that's like a place somebody could live. And you're just going to piss that in a couple of hours. So, yeah, it, it's a little disturbing sometimes, but then, you know, if that's the kind of cash flow you have, who am I to judge you for spending that kind of money on a bottle of whiskey? I mean, there's people who have, that's just a blip in their bank account. So, you know, I bless it and say, may you be even even better and, and, and more well off to benefit somebody. <laughs> so, Kenny, there's a retailer in California selling a bottle of Red Hook Rye for... $30,000. Well, you say selling. They may have it out there, but that doesn't mean it's being bought. And it's just like the guy um, in New York with Fitty. I mean, Lee, Lee Tightman bought that set that I just mentioned, the number twos. He bought up some other bottles for me as well. And then when he put that Red Hook Rice set out for $175,000 on his website, it went like wildfire. And I messaged him and I was like, like, I, like you, you spent less than $4,000 a bottle on some of that stuff. So like, where's that number coming from? And he just laughed. He's like, man, it's just marketing. Everybody's 
talking about it and it went viral and he was a marketing genius for doing it. He brought a ton of people to his business because they were all like, oh my God, is that a rapid bra for $175,000? That's crazy. But you know, people came to the store to talk about it or see what else he had. Somebody sent me a link the other day. Christie's auction house had a Red Hook Rye with starting bid of twenty thousand. Okay, I think we've <laughs> we've we've talked about the, the the Red Hook Rye a lot and the, the just the crazy valuation. Because found a bottle for fifty thousand. Right, okay, get my checkbook out. <laughs> Do I hear sixty. All right. Okay. Well, let's. Uh, Let's wait until the next. Uh, maybe sh- that should just be like the new index. Like it's it's the Red Hook Rye Index to see like how how crazy is the bourbon Richter scale getting year after year. Maybe that's what you should do with your stuff, Kenny. Is the uh, just start pricing it a thousand to five thousand dollars a bottle, and then people go crazy for it. See what happens. I, I'm I'm all I'm all about it. The funny so, thing is, Red Hook Rye number one. I sold those for seventy five dollars a bottle. There you Probably. go. And, but even back then, uh, this was what? What year was this? 2008, nine? Um, I think the Red Hook Rye started in what? Was it 2007? I can't remember the, the year, but yeah. And even back then, 75 is, it probably might have been a lot for a lot of folks, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, it was. But uh, by barrel four, we went up to 350 and people were like, whoa, she's getting crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so let's let's kind of like move it forward because you know those those bottles help build the business down in, in Alabama. So kind of talk about you know seven years to to get this this up and running. Kind of that's that's a long time to to really work on something. I mean, kind of talk about was was there you know other than getting money? I mean, were there any other kind of like hiccups and hurdles that you had to face along the way to to make that happen? Because everybody knows that in Alabama, it's really easy to just open up liquor stores. I, opening is pretty easy. I mean, it, it's uh, it's not difficult to open a private store here. Um, the liquor licensing process is not dreadful at all. Um, See, I just figure I figure with control states, it'd be a nightmare. It's not at all, and it was even cheaper to open here than it was to open in New York, as far as licensing and everything. Um, you know, the challenges were it was mostly financial, um, and I, I you know I said I would never do this again unless I owned the property. I bought the property thought that it would be pretty easy to get financing, having done this before. And um, I learned real quickly that since I'd been closed for so long, it was considered a new startup. I brought my husband here from Mexico and we had to go through naturalization for him. I got pregnant. You know, there was just a whole lot of stuff on my plate. Then, um, you know, it was a great lesson in what a woman goes through when you decide to start life again as a single mother, because um, it was very difficult for me to, one, make a living while I was trying to open the store. And there were plenty of people who were like, yeah, we don't mind, you know, come over here and bartend. I bartended a shit ton of private parties. I mean, I just like pimped myself out, made things work. But the financing, like so many people be like, oh yeah, you know what you're doing. But you know, once you've been open for three years, um, Get, get money from us. It's the classic, you know, like once you're, once you don't need it, you can get it. And the, it, there's a lot of systemic racism and I, I call that out regularly. And, um, that doesn't go over real well. Um, neighborhoods who are predominantly African-American really struggle with getting investment money from banks oftentimes. So yeah, there was a whole lot of challenges to jump through, but yeah, I just took it. I took it one day at a time, one moment at a time. And it took me seven years, but I did it. <laughs> I'm glad you did. And and I'll tell you, I don't know the strength that you um, have exuded in that time frame. Most people would give up. Yeah, it was really tough, but, you know, it made me go deep. And um, I think the, the biggest thing in going through that challenge, um, I I had become a caricature of myself. In New York, in many ways, I had built this business and I had built this character called Linnell. And going through what I did to get open again here, I feel like I am more true to myself and more rooted and grounded in the core of my being than ever before. So that's good. There's always some good to come through those difficult times. So I'm just 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 thinking about if I were to put myself 
in in your shoes if I if I were a single parent and having to go through all that and face the the banking challenges, I probably would have moved on to something else. And and so I kind of like just the human element of us all, you know, why why didn't you give up? Why was this store so important to you to start? Um, I knew the impact this business could have on this neighborhood, and I'm I'm very much a believer in the impact of business on social justice. I've always been that way. And um, this neighborhood, when I came to visit it, to look at this property, just grabbed me by the heart and wouldn't let go. And neighbors just were like, we need you here, and we're behind you here. And I had neighbors who said, when I first came here, um, they didn't even know me. Yeah, while you're trying to figure stuff out here, live in my house or here, we've got this, you know, I showed up here with a suitcase. And next thing I know, like people had just like showed up with stuff to like help me get through um, that moving from Mexico period. So I felt that in Red Hook, too. There was a sense of community. And um, so there was. Yeah, there, I, I really did feel like I was being pulled. By a higher calling through that whole process. And I knew the impact was going to be bigger than what I even understood. And I many times have had conversations with beautiful souls like Britt Colesvane and just sit and say, I, and just in tears, like, I don't know why this is happening the way it is, but there is something on the other side of this that I'm meant to do. And one of my big things with opening the cafe concept next to the store that I feel so strongly about is that this business is ready to be turned on its head. And we've beat up people in hospitality. We overwork them. We don't respect home life. You have souls like Sean Brock who cleaned his shit up and he's being really outspoken about this too. Um, We've lost a lot of people in this business. People don't want to talk about it, but it's overconsumption and drug use and just not taking care of themselves. And I really want my whole business concept with the store and the cafe concept next door to be about hope and healing and and how can you have an alcohol business and I'm still figuring this out but have the message that you can build community around consumption and it not get to the level where we're fucking ourselves up and I know that's deep but that's where I am (laughs) that's where we need to go I mean in the last um you know from Sasha uh to um you know, the gentleman we lost in, in Miami to Anthony Bourdain. I mean, we've lost so many iconic people in the hospitality space. And, you know, I've been covering this this industry for a long time. And we were looking at Tales of the Cocktail. And almost a quarter of the seminars are about taking care of yourself. So the industry knows that we have to change or we won't have an industry anymore, or at least we won't have the talent. Yeah. So I'm very thankful that you've seen this and you're pushing for it. Well, and as a mom, too, I see how hard it is for women to stay in this business and and raise a family because I don't care how wonderful you are as a dad. Nine times out of 10, the woman is still doing most of the child care. And so to still be like the one who's taking care of the, the babies and more than likely doing the laundry and washing the dishes and running a business or staying, you know, as a, a manager of a restaurant or whatever it is, it's really difficult for women. And I, that's another aspect of what I'm hoping to do with this business is, uh, is prove that it can be done in a way that respects and supports women. You know, I was a breastfeeding mom when I was working um, behind a bar and like, who offers a woman pump breaks behind a bar? Nobody. You know, my breasts would be engorged. I'm like freaking out. Like, what am I supposed to do? I'd like, how do I hide a breast pump in the bathroom and a paper towel holder? <laughs> I mean, those conversations need to be had. You know, it's not just about young punks that we just like wear out till their bodies won't handle it anymore. Or we run everybody out of the business that, you know, has a lot to contribute to the business. So yeah, a lot of- I have a proposal for you. What's that? Let's do a seminar at Tales of the Cocktail next year. Oh, Lord. I boycotted Tales back in 2008, <laughs> but uh, I know it's a changed. new world now. Yeah, it's changed. Uh, Kenny, I, I got to tell you, it's it's this kind of, of passion that is really out outside of whiskey, but 
within whiskey that to me is, is the future of our culture, you know? So our, our culture cannot live on whiskey alone. It has to, it has to come together as a community and this recognition that there's potentially substance abuse problems. That is huge. That is huge. And she brought up Sean Brock, you know, friend of mine, friend of yours. And, you know, he is, he's had a very uh, public battle with alcoholism I mean, Sean, that guy can't even go to the grocery store without it getting in the New York Times. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it gets covered a lot. But I, I want to I want to come back to you um, a little. You something you brought up is 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 the woman angle, and I'm very passionate about this uh, of like you know creating a an environment in the whiskey industry that is women feel comfortable in. It's a big reason why I wrote the book I did. And then I look, going back to your label, you kind of have a little bit of the Rosie Riveter angle feel to it. Do you feel like it is better today than it was 10, 15 years ago um, as a woman? Uh, taking out the, the creepy guys on, on the bourbon secondary markets, but do you feel like today is better than it was 10, 15 years ago as a woman in whiskey? Well, of course, there's been tremendous progress and we have more women in the business, you know, in leadership capacity than we ever have, um, probably. Um, so, yeah, I mean, of course, the answer is yes. Yeah, it's it's, it's made progress. I mean, is there still like a shit ton of room? Yeah. Do we need to- what are some areas we need improvement upon? Marketing. Um, as you know, I'm sure you hear this from so many women. We're all tired of seeing the good old boy marketing. When Matthew McConaughey got involved with Wild Turkey, there's always, oh, I'm going to revamp Wild Turkey. And I'm like, oh, it still looks like a good old boy backslapping club. Okay, well, how was that so, like, groundbreaking? <laughs> I mean, the commercials are beautiful, but, like, what what did that, what boundary did that push? Um, marketing, yeah, I mean, it, and it doesn't need to be like, oh, look at this beautiful face drinking some whiskey. You know, it needs to be real. It needs to be raw. Um that's one of the and marketing is powerful marketing, not only with, with real women, but people of color. Um, let's, let's, let's talk about some, you know, LGBTQ up in here too. Let's just throw all that up in there. You know? And so we're just starting to scratch the surface of the conservative whiskey world. I agree. You see a lot of that today. Uh, and, and hopefully we can see more of that change and progress, you know, as, as this, uh, comes along. And, and I think having a voice like yours being really outspoken and, you know, there's, there's a lot of industry people that listen to this podcast and, and they're going to hopefully take note of that too. And, and, and kind of see that change, but we I are like trying to work on website ideas. My website is still it's a landing page and, and looks like shit, but, um, you know, talking to companies about website ideas, and I, and I'm saying the same kind of things I'm just saying to you, like, no, we need images, images that reflect, my customers, I, you know, why can't we have two black hands toasting or um, a, a two women looking like they're celebrating their wedding? And the, and the market, marketing guys at these website companies are like, well, I mean, those images don't really exist for ease. And I'm like, OK, well, then let's take some freaking pictures. Let's create the images. I don't just give me this excuse of like you don't have those images in some stock file. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, all that's powerful. Like what we see, what becomes the norm. Oh, I've seen a lot of those photos. I think you need new marketing people. Exactly, right? And that's, yeah. that's why my webpage still sucks because I haven't found the right company. <laughs> so we are kind of running up on the, the, the top of the salary real quick. And I kind of want to circle back to uh, just to your story again to kind of wrap this up. And and so seven years, the door is open. Kind of talk about what business has been like because you mentioned the first door. It was kind of like, all right it'll build up. There's an inflection point. Like, and you said, this one was just hit the ground running on day one. Kind of, kind of talk about what, what that's been in, you know, and, and whether it's been a blessing or curse with work and everything else. It's been a huge blessing. I'm very grateful. And it's, um, it's just a, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed when I opened in New York, I, I really worked the store pretty much by myself for three years. And my boyfriend at the time, when he got off work, would come in and, and put in time as well. Um, but it took really in New York three years before I could fi- I could hire a full-on team. And I have two full-time staff right now, and I'm interviewing t- 
to hire two more. So I have a total of four in the first year. I'm already there. I'm at sales in in one year here that it took me four years to get to in New York City. Wow. That's impressive to be able to do that in Birmingham and in New York. And, you know, I just did my employees annual reviews um, with a sip of Appleton 50, no bourbon. Um, It's okay. You're still speaking to to, uh, Fred's Fred's heartstrings there. Appleton 50, isn't that good? I know. It was incredible. Oh, my God. It's so good. Um, Makes me want to definitely go do a staff trip to Jamaica. But um, yeah, one of the things that came out of that is my staff's like, you know, you have uh, kind of been backslapping that you've not been in the store micromanaging because in New York, I, it was very, very difficult for me to walk away and let employees do their thing because um, I had just like I had oozed that store for so long. I mean, I, many times I slept on the floor of that store and got up and just kept going. But to see the success and, and just for me to be at a place of growth, too, that I'd I, I've been able to let go and trust employees already to start managing things that took me years in New York to get to. Yeah, it's um, we're going to start working on the cafe concept. Um, that's the next thing, and um, that's going to be probably about two years out. But it's a huge project. We're taking on a uh, big Greek revival, old historic home that's right next to the store. That's going to be um, pretty amazing project. Try to get Sean Brock to come down here and play with me, but <laughs> send a few text messages. It might happen. I did, I did but you know, <laughs> we haven't snagged him yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we had, we did have one question in the chat that that came from Mikey Conrad, and and you know, because you've you've got this history of kind of opening up businesses that are more of like in impoverished areas, and he asked a question: Are you working with other organizations or partnering with other stores to help in that sort of same? socioeconomic background to help start their business and kickstart it off the ground as well? That's a great question. And it's something that I do feel very strongly about. Um, There's been some talk about trying to form like a business association, a merchants association in this area. This area does not have a whole lot of business at all. The old business corridor is pretty much gone. Um, There's a lot of talk with connecting our neighborhood we have millions of dollars of de- development going on a mile down the road. Um, so there's been a lot of talk of time to connect that and, and um, how we do that to keep mom and pop businesses a part of that and not just be a whole bunch of chains. But, you know, my goal, my long term goal is to really get to a point where I can mentor and help other, especially women, get started in business in a way that I think is so needed. Women have got to support women financially and getting our businesses off the ground because we understand each other in a way nobody else is. Um, as far as, yeah, especially like balancing home life and kids and everything. And um, yeah, I don't have any definite plans, but that's something that I think a lot about. Um, I haven't had a, haven't had a free moment to, to focus on that right now, but I will in time. Oh, that's great. And and so as we close this out, I got one more question to ask of you. So you, uh, you went and you sold all your red hooks. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there's some part of you that, that is, that has a little bit of hole in your heart, but maybe, maybe that, that hole's sort of getting filled by knowing that you're, you're building something bigger and better. Uh, and then earlier this year, you had done two more Willet picks. You'd done your, your light side and your dark side. Tell me you kept at least a few bottles of that and you're not going to, you're not going to do the same I thing did, again. I did. I had a few friends who were like, don't be stupid this time. Um, and I wouldn't call it being stupid. I mean, I just was like, woo, everybody enjoy the enjoy the whiskey before. Um, but I didn't keep a lot. I kept bottles one through six of each one. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is the what is the new project you have? And remember, this won't come out for a long time. So no one's going to know for a while. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about it somewhat. I'm not going to give out all the details. But um, there's a, a distiller here in Alabama that I'm excited about. Seth Detling, and we yeah, have a cool. project we're working on together. Um, and no, it's not going to be a 23-year-old rye. But I went down and met him and tasted um, out of barrel. And um, he had a, he had a one barrel that really pulled my heartstrings that um, it's going to be fun. You know, he sent me some stuff, too, that uh, to me was really reminiscent of, uh, of a couple honey barrels that I'd had from, from Willett. So I can see, I could see, I could see like your, uh, your heartstrings lining up there. Like, no, he's a good distiller. He's a good person. And again, it's like, 
like withdrew. That project just happened because we were building a friendship and it happened naturally. So I'm not out here trying to replace a red hook ride. That's never going to happen. Um, I, I just, I felt the butterflies when I went down and met with Seth. And so I told him when I feel this feeling, I got to follow up on it. So let's make this magic happen. So that's fantastic. So as we kind of wrap this up here, at least we got a, we got a little bit of teaser. We'll see what's happening next. Maybe we'll, we'll get back with you here in a year and we'll kind of see where you are with that project. It'd be good to, to get it kind of, uh, uh, a whole whole circle feedback here. Uh, but for anybody that wants to go to Linnell's Beverage Boutique and find out more about it, how do they do that? Uh, like I said, the website sucks. Our Facebook page is very active. All our social media is at Linnell's Beham. That's L-E-N-E-L-L-S-B-H-A-M. And what's your address? Because I have a feeling that someone's going to change the direction of where they're driving right now as they're listening to this to come to your <laughs> We're at 1208 32nd Street North. We're a mile up from Top Golf. There you go. Get your pint and head on over to Top Golf. Save yourself a few bucks. <laughs> You're know, trying to fight that in Louisville. I don't sell <laughs> pints, man. Come on. Oh, no pints there. Okay. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Bad Kenny. We're bougie. We're bougie. We don't sell pints over here. I call it cheeky. There you go. <laughs> so, Lynn, I want to say thank you again so much for coming on the show. I mean, for for us, I mean, it was a. I had met you originally at the the Willet Bar opening uh, about I think year maybe two years ago now, uh, and and really this opportunity to kind of really sit down, capture your story, and really be able to spread the message of really what you're doing, not only just for whiskey. Whiskey's one aspect, but the the human element, uh, and you. and what you're doing to to really promote that. I think it speaks a lot for yourself and and what you're trying to do to help impact and change the industry. You know, it's just one person trying to trying to really kind of scale that up too. So thank you again for for coming on the show and doing that. Thank you for being a gentleman in your chase to get us to sit down together. <laughs> Absolutely. I do my best for that. Uh, and if you want to know more about us, you can follow Bourbon Pursuit on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you like the show, you want to support the show, you want to ask questions and see this live as we do these recordings, you go and support us at patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit. And uh, if you want some good reading material, make sure you go check out bourbon plus magazine as well. Uh, we've got a, we've even got some things going on with our Patreon community and getting bourbon plus subscriptions. So make sure you go and do that. Thank you everybody that was watching this live. It's been a pleasure and we'll see everybody next week. Mm -hmm.